Do you love to look at a good painting? Just sit there and take in, uh, say, uh, an oil, the brush strokes, the, the color, the movement. It's a, it's a great town to do that in. I mean, just go right up the street to the Smithsonian, or if you run out of museums in D.C., go up to New York, take in the Guggenheim, the MoMA, lots of options. It's, it's fun. It's so satisfying to look at the creativity that God has put into the hands and eyes of people. And sometimes it's fun to look almost uh, beyond or through, say, the brushstrokes or through the thumbprints in, in the clay and, and try and get into the head of the artist to figure out what it is that they had in mind, what they're really trying to express through the images that they have shared with us. There was a time where I took an it was sort of an art appreciation class, but there was a portion in the class where we were critiquing uh, various artists' works and, and speaking about color and range and dynamic this and that and, and also what the artist is, is trying to say. And so one day we had sort of a, an examination uh, in front of the class that we would each get a chance to critique a work of art. And on this day it was pottery. And the artwork that was being critiqued, uh, the artist was there. And so we would have the horrible uh, opportunity <laughs> to evaluate and critique the artist's work while he's listening in. And so we began to go through the class. And the first guy that got up, uh, he chose to discuss uh, what the artist had in mind with this uh, it was, a, it was a heart-shaped piece of clay with a dent in it. And he said, that what the artist is saying here is that, well, he's speaking about the fragility of love, how easily it's, uh, our hearts are, are damaged. Is, isn't that right? As he turned to the artist. And the artist said, well, no, actually, I, I was working on a heart shape and it slipped out of my hands and fell on the floor. And when I picked it up, there was this dent in it, and I sort of liked it. So I kept it. It's nice to hear from the artist himself or herself what they have in mind. You might not be able to figure it out on your own. Well, that's sort of the way it was with this famous painting called The Light of the World, painted in the 19th century. It is a realistic, and you can turn your eyes to the screen, picture of Jesus standing outside of this door, and knocking. There are several interesting, many interesting things about this picture, but one of the most interesting thing is this door uh, doesn't have a handle on it. There's no doorknob. Jesus is knocking on a door with no doorknob. There are other odd things about the painting. If you look and you see those, it's like there are vines or weeds uh, growing up the side of the door from the ground. It's as if this wooden door has not been open for a long time, for years, maybe never. Jesus, you see him there, he's wearing crowns, he's got a moon behind him, highlighting his head, and there's all this tree imagery, probably related to the cross, although I didn't talk to the artist about it, but there he is holding a lantern, hence the title of the painting, The Light of the World, that's easy enough to figure out. The painting was a success, the artist was from Britain. His name was 
William Holman Hunt. And like this would-be fellow student art critic in my class, he had all of his in his world, and they were all speaking about what the artist had in mind with Jesus standing at this door with no doorknob and these vines and these weeds and all of this. And finally, apparently, after about 50 years of these uh, grade B art critics, he couldn't take it anymore. He wanted to set the record straight on what it was that he had in mind when he painted The Light of the World. And he said this, I really felt unworthy about painting the picture, but it was sort of like by divine command. And not simply just to paint this beautiful subject of Jesus. And he said, the door in the painting has no handle and therefore cannot be opened from the outside. He said, it can only be opened from the inside. And he said, that represented the obstinately shut mind. So what he has in mind is Jesus standing outside the door of a person, waiting for them to open themselves up and let him in. The original was painted in a little uh, shack kind of place in Surrey, England, and now it sits off uh, one of the colleges of Oxford. Later in his life, he painted another version, apparently life-size, and it it went on a, a world tour that drew large crowds. If you want to see it, you can still see it. It's hanging in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Perhaps some of you have already uh, sat in front of this painting. But anyway, this painting inspired people. It was produced in volume. Uh, It inspired uh, other artists. Uh, Sir Arthur Sullivan uh, made an oratorio uh, inspired by that in 1873. And now because of what Hunt painted and what he's told us about why he painted it. Preachers love it. They love to say how Jesus uh, stands at the door of our hearts. He's a gentleman. He won't barge into your life, but he's standing there, gently knocking, rapping, maybe banging at times, but he won't come in. He won't barge in. He's a gentleman. Well, Hunt got the idea of this painting from a story that comes at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It's a letter there to a church in a city called Laodicea. It's a love letter, really. We could call it a love painting if we want. It's found in Revelation chapter 3. And there Jesus is standing at the door of a church and knocking. It's an inspiring verbal painting of God's love for this church. These uh, words are painted uh, by the Apostle John while he's imprisoned on an island in Greece uh, called Patmos. It's about half the size of Manhattan. He was an old man at the end of his life, and Jesus tells him exactly what to paint, just like on the last version of Hunt's painting, the one that's hanging in the the cathedral now. uh, He had an assistant with him. It was just too big a work to do by himself. Well, Jesus has John to write this letter. And this is how it goes, beginning in Revelation 3, verse 15. I'm starting a little into the letter. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, 
You're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Buy these things from, buy this from me and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And, and buy salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And then Jesus paints these words. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is speaking to a church that is so self-satisfied. And he says, you know, guys, you're lukewarm. So the sins are, are corporate. But think about it. Who of us are, are not self-satisfied with ourselves at times? Who of us uh, don't feel lukewarm in our faith? Well, anyway, as we look at the brushstrokes of this letter, and we look at some of the finer, maybe pointillism or whatever, the little, the little lines in it, we can notice some things that we might not get uh, on a quick view or from a distance. Yeah, it's a word to the church. But Jesus, when he says you in there, you would think that he would use in Greek you plural, but he doesn't. He uses you singular, not as uh, you all think you're rich, but you, you know, you right there. Yeah. Yep, you, the one I'm pointing to, the one sitting right there. Yep, you, buddy, think you're rich, but you're not. He doesn't say you all. And so I think it's fair to say that, yeah, this letter is to a church, but really it's also to every individual in it. Yeah, you have need for group repentance, but in the smaller groups and in your small groups and in your small groups of one, you have need of personal change. Incidentally, William Holman Hunt himself came to Christ. He, he became changed as a result of painting the light of the world. It's nice when your occupation leads you to Jesus. That happens sometimes. It happened to a couple guys uh, from Oxford, two students named Gilbert West and Lord Littleton. They believed that Christianity was a tale gone mad, they said. They determined to refute the whole faith. Littleton was resolved to dis disprove the conversion of Saul. And West wanted to uh, debunk the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they thought that if they had a careful, rational examination of the evidence, they could easily disprove the Christian faith. And they can write a bestseller and uh, set the world on a better course. But after examining the evidence, both of them came to the conclusion that what they set out to disprove, they ended up proving it themselves. And so the one uh, concluded that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was among the best established facts in all of history. And he went on to write a book called Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other guy became convinced that the Apostle Paul uh, converted, was converted through Jesus Christ. Well, the artist who painted the light of the world ended up writing about the painting. And if you look at it, I mean, look at Jesus standing there. He is solid. He is strong. He's a, he's a chunk of a guy. Even so, he's not breaking the door down. He's just standing there with his lantern. Jesus standing outside the door of a closed mind, waiting there for people who, or anyone, 
who won't open themselves up to him. You know, there are a lot of people like that today. There's a study by the Pew Center that said that unbelief is on the uptick. More and more people are asked to, uh, when they're asked to put a check mark next to their religious affiliation, will check none. Apparently, nearly, nearly one in five Americans, 19%, when asked about their religious affiliation, will check none. There is a huge rise in nuns. And of course, in the nuns, there are atheists, agnostics, those who also believe in nothing in particular. It's almost become the default category. And uh, this uh, pollster says that young people are resistant to the authority of the institution of religion. Older people are turned off by it. And people are simply less into theology than ever before. In 1990, when the first survey of nuns was taken, that's N-O-N-E-S, right, not N-U-N-S, uh, there were 6% of the U.S. adults would check that box. 2008 survey, the nuns were up by 15%, up to 15%. By 2010, another survey, uh, a biannual general social survey, bumped the number to 18%. 18% of the people you know, probably more now, will say no religious affiliation. Uh, a blogger named Smith writes, among people under the age of 30, now fully one-third are religiously unaffiliated. They check the box, religious affiliation, none. And he says, and that's a rate of disaffiliation that's much higher than is seen among their elders, and it's also a rate of disaffiliation that's much higher than we've seen ever among previous generations of young people. So this reality is something new under the sun. Our reality is that Jesus is standing outside the doors of more and more American people, and the doors are being unanswered, especially young people won't answer. Well, in the original context, of Jesus' letter. It's, it's not written to a nation at large, a general population of Christians, non-Christians, and um, in-betweens, the nuns. And I think this can help us understand this love painting that's in Revelation chapter 3. What Jesus has in mind when he talks about the hot, the cold, and the lukewarm, how he's warning them the church, and the individuals in the church. It's a message to you and to me. Here, here's what I want us to look at. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. So Jesus is standing there right now. He's there day or night. The phone is never going to voicemail. It's always open line Friday with Jesus. There's no lit sign outside a heaven's emergency room letting you know how long the wait will be. It's like a walk-in clinic with no line when it comes to God. There's no waiting in line to pump gas. You just pull right up to the pump for your spiritual refill. He'll drop anything for you at a moment and give you his undivided attention like, like your favorite doctor will. There was a person who had an image of going to heaven. I don't know if it's true or not, but 
a friend of mine says that he knows someone that this happened to, and I think they wrote about it, but I, I can't verify that. But at any rate, I remember the vision that this guy died and went to heaven, and he was standing there with all the throngs of people, and just more than he could even count, way more. And there's Jesus in the crowd. And what was surprising to him was Jesus came right up to him. And he had this amazing conversation that went on and on and on, one-on-one. And he thought, you know, this is amazing. Out of all the people in this crowd, Jesus and I are having a one-on-one. And then he realized, no, Jesus is having a one-on-one with everyone at the same time. It was a mind-blowing thing about what Jesus can do, and we can't. Well, anyway, in this letter, Jesus is having a one-on-one conversation with the church and with everyone in the church, and he describes himself like this. He describes himself, Jesus, as the amen, the faithful and true witness, He describes himself that way. It's a clue because this is the problem that this church had. Their witness, theirs, was not faithful and true. And he wants them to have a witness that is faithful and true. How's your witness? Jesus wants it to be faithful. He wants it to be true. And he's basically saying in the book of Revelation, the uh, the larger canvas of this painting that he wants them to have a faithful and true witness, and he's introducing himself as that. And if they don't get it together, if they don't have a faithful and true witness, by the end, they're going to meet the faithful and true judge. You'll find that in Revelation 19. And of course, that's the same for all of us. Apparently, the witness of these people had become inconsequential. Maybe they were just like, cultural Christians, maybe a Christmas Easter type Christians. But if they took a survey and had some options on what kind of uh, religious affiliation they had, they wouldn't check none. They would mark Christian. But Jesus says he's not happy with just checking that box. He wants you to either be hot, he says, or cold. What does that mean? Well, most people today, many people, think that Jesus is speaking to the general population. He's speaking to everyone, to Christians and non-Christians alike, and to the in-betweens. And so that colors people's judgment on what he's saying, that he wants you to be hot or cold or lukewarm. So to be cold, then obviously that would be uh, a negative term, right? I want you to be cold. In other words, I want you to be turned off to me. Uh, I'm okay I would like you to be an atheist, a Muslim, a Buddhist, uh, people who don't want me, don't care, don't believe, don't buy it. It's okay. I would like you to have no interest in me. That's what he's saying. And, And that makes some sense, I guess. I mean, Jesus is used to dealing with people like that. Weren't we like that? We were once far from him, and now we've been drawn near. We love him because he loved us first. He's always the primary mover. And so you can see that it's okay. It's okay. He's not put off by people who hate his guts 
whether they like him or not. He's okay with them. And then, of course, so, so that's one category, the, the people that are cold to the gospel, cold to Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm, I'm good with another category, too, those who are hot. And, and that would obviously be uh, the Christians, right? Those who are on fire for him, zealous for Jesus. They're all in. And then, to continue in this way of interpreting, then you've got this other category in between hot and cold, the lukewarm people. They are like, uncommitted voters, you know, the ones that get stuck in focus groups. And they're kind of swayed one way or the other, one day, one talk or another. Yeah, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm not. Oh, I can't make up my mind. And so we think of uh, military people who say, come on, lead, follow, or get out of the way. But just don't be indecisive. Please be committed one way or the other. Get off your couch and vote. I don't care how you do, but But don't sit on the fence. Well, this is one of the most common ways of interpreting what Jesus is saying, but it's got his problems because you have Jesus praising those who hate him uh, with the equal amounts of praise with those who love him. And so that's so you've got that, and then but you've got people that are maybe on further down the road on the continuum of faith. Say they were cold, and now they're kind of thinking about the gospel, and they're lukewarm. And those people who are not quite hot yet, and they're not cold, those are the people that he's really hacked off at, that he's rebuking the undecided, that he's, that he's making fun of and warning and exhorting the lukewarm. And that seems odd, doesn't it? Why would you be hard on someone when they're getting a little closer to being a hot or, or a committed Christian. Well, the thinking now is that that's not what Jesus the artist had in mind when he was painting this letter through the hand of John. Laodicea had this unique feature about the city. It's water. Nearby, there was another town called Hierapolis. It had hot water bubbling out, you know, Everyone loved it. The medical community, the tourist industry, the health industry. It was great. I mean, just think. I mean, stick your cup there, nice hot water, make tea, easy. There was another town, just just the opposite, called Colossae. There the waters were cold. They were pure and drinkable. You stick your cup in that water, and it's like, ah, nothing more refreshing than that. But Laodicea, this had water that was Yucky, lukewarm. You take your cup into a spring in Laodicea and you taste it and you're going to want to spit it out. Something has to be done to it. Either heat it up or chill it down, but to drink it like that, yuck. Not useful. And so the idea is hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. But lukewarm water, it's basically useless. And so that's what Jesus is saying. And it fits that he wants them to be like, well, to be useful in their life. He wants them to be useful in their witness primarily, not complacent, not not look like the world around them, not take the light that he's given them and hide it under a bushel. He wants them to be faithful and true. Or else, he says, you get it together You become useful for me or else you are useless to me. 
Just like when he said to the people in Matthew 7, I never knew you. Get away from me. The idea is that if you do truly belong to Jesus, your life is going to look like it. You're going to look different than the people around you, aren't you? You're going to look different than the banker down the street or the Hollywood person or whatever. Your whole life is going to look different, not, not just the box that you check on a survey. These people thought they were okay. Apparently from the letter, they, they were doing okay financially. But they weren't doing okay spiritually. They thought maybe that their uh, healthy bank accounts represented a healthy spiritual bank account. But Jesus is saying, uh-uh. These people were busy giving themselves self-examinations, you know, uh, checking for lumps, and they had none. But he's saying, ah, no, you've got cancer. Now, what is your view, by the way, of self-examination? It can be very useful. You know, our president was just asked, what, what kind of grade would he give himself on the economy? It was four years into his administration, and he gave himself an incomplete. Apparently, it's an eight-year course. We'll find out if he gets a chance to to finish it or else we'll have to grade him for uh, the four years. But I, I think the idea of self-evaluation is wonderful. I mean, I, I would definitely uh, think it could be useful to clean up my college transcript here or there. Um, you can give yourself a promotion, just write your own recommendation. It can be very useful. And apparently, the church in Laodicea gave themselves an evaluation and they graded themselves rather high. They graded themselves as three things. They graded themselves as rich. They graded themselves as good eyes. And they voted themselves best dressed. And Jesus said, uh-uh. You're not rich. You don't have 20-20. And I don't like your clothes. He said, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Now, they thought they were rich because they were living in a banking city. And from their perspective, they were, they were rich. But Jesus says, no, I'm looking at your bank account. And from here, it shows... Uh, empty, overdrawn. They lived in a city with this amazing medical school that, that had this, uh, they would put this uh, salve on for people's eyes. Uh, ophthalmology was, it was, it was unsurpassed uh, in that world. But Jesus is saying, hey, you vision experts, you're blind as bats. City also was uh, doing well in the textile trade famous for making uh, fashionable clothes out of wool. And Jesus is saying, you know, uh, if you could see yourself in the mirror that I'm looking at, uh, you're naked, buddy. The main point is that uh, you can't depend on natural resources in the kingdom of God. We, we want to be uh, energy independent, don't we? Isn't that part of uh, our plan to be energy dependent by X and X a date? But Jesus is saying, you don't want to be spiritually energy independent. You want to depend on God. And not only that, Jesus had a, another political statement maybe to make. He, he said, I, I'd like you to get back on the gold standard. You need it. I want you to buy gold from me. Gold refined by fire. What he's saying is, and it's an idiom, I want you to purify yourselves. You've got some sin in your life that needs to be burned out before you're useful and pure and true. It's a metaphor that has a very similar meaning to buy white clothes to wear. I want you to do that, to cover your nakedness. Again, purify yourselves. 
I mean, get a right analysis of you. Trust my assessment of you. And make yourselves useful. And I want you, verse 18, to put godly salve on your eyes so you can see. You know, get that plank out of your eye before you start pulling specks out of all these others that come for treatment. The thing is, it is so loving that Jesus tells them these things. And he says, I'm basically saying I love you. He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So, I'm rebuking you. This is what I want. Maybe some of you are being rebuked by God. It's only because he loves you. And what he wants, a godly rebuke, he wants you to be earnest and repent. That's what Jesus says. He he doesn't want to punish these people. He doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to reject them. He doesn't want to reject you. He doesn't want that. What he wants is for them and for you, for me, to get our witness pure and true and put it into high gear. And so Jesus says this, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone should hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him. This word is, is uh, like the preachers preach. It's for every Christian. If anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him. It's like the parable with Jesus, uh, uh, the master coming back from a wedding feast. The servants are encouraged to be there and, and to open the door as soon as he comes back, immediately, Luke 12, 36. And here he just says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Is he standing at your door and knocking? Probably. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. That's a good meal to have. That's good company to be in. And he says, when you do that, here's the big promise. Here's the big deal. Now, we think it's, well, election is just around the corner. We maybe are going to have a new president. Maybe we're going to have the same president. But it's a big deal to, 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 to picture our uh, administration in Washington. There are going to be a lot of jobs offered in Washington um, either way, uh, the election goes. And, and it'll be a wonder, considered wonderful to, to serve in, in an administration there. A lot of you are serving in the current one. Others will be serving in the next one if, if Romney wins a week from now. Lots of jobs will be offered. But Jesus says in his administration, he's holding out jobs to those whose witness is faithful and true. And to those, he calls them overcomers because they don't look like other people. Their lives aren't directed by the things of this world. Their lives aren't ultimately directed by the city they live in. They're directed by the one who presides over the city they live in. And he says this in verse 21, and here's the big promise about God's personal administration. He says, to the one who overcomes... I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, which, by the way, is forever and ever. It doesn't come up every four years. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I think this is meant to be motivating. It's motivating for me. I want to invite Jesus in more, and I think that's how we do it. 
We invite him in through prayer. We invite him in through opening the word. And he says he'll come in and eat with us and we with him. And so when we're having that meal, when we're having quality time, we say, okay, Lord, this time is for us. This is our time. I'm done with me time. This is our time. I think it's fair to say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be useful. What do you want me to do? How can I be hot? Hot water. How can I be useful? How can I be cold? How can I be refreshing in this life? Lord, how can my witness be made pure? I feel like I've dropped the ball in this area or that area. Would you burn it out? Would you refine me as you refine gold? Burn out the impurities in me, Lord, because I want to have a pure witness. I want to be on fire for you, or I want to be freezing cold for you. Whatever, I want to, I want to have a use in your kingdom. And if you're sitting there feeling lukewarm and unsatisfied, that is the most godly feeling you can have. That was the entire church in Laodicea. And God said, I want you to repent of that and be earnest and get your witness lined up so that you can be useful people for me. That is what Jesus Christ wanted for them. And that is exactly what he wants for you. Now that's something to celebrate. 